Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Peak in the Pit podcast, an episodic podcast to share the peaks and the pits in the day-to-day lives of teachers, students, and staff as a tool for reflection, growth, and improvement. Good whatever time of day it is to you, listeners, and welcome back to the Peak in the Pit Two weeks ago, I had the privilege of sitting down with my aunt to discuss adoption and the language use around adoption and the experience that she has had bringing home my two beautiful cousins, Luke and Noah. I thought the awareness that she brought to classroom teachers surrounding adoption or non-traditional non-nuclear families was an important conversation. However, what left me feeling conflicted after our chat was that race was inevitably discussed. Since Luke and Noah are both non-white boys, it was hard to discuss their adoption without also acknowledging their race. But the part that left me conflicted was not that we discussed their race specifically, but that we were two white women discussing the race of two non-white boys. And while my aunt has every right to speak about her boys and their personal experiences, both within their family and beyond, we both don't know how to speak upon the topic of non-whiteness. What we instead could have talked about was how we could use our whiteness to advocate for Luke and Noah surrounding their race, not just their academics. In the episode, my aunt talked a lot about advocating for your children within the realm of the content in a classroom, but what we didn't touch on was how we, and I'm including myself, could advocate and become allies to Luke and Noah in regard to their race. This led me to think about one of my favorite books, I'm Judging You, The Do Better Manual, by Lovey Ajayi. Lovey is an award-winning author, speaker, and digital strategist thriving at the intersection of comedy, technology, and activism. That's from her website. Um, But she's committed to using her voice for pop culture critique and gender and racial justice. In her book, I'm judging you. She covers a slew of topics that comically push and encourage reflective thinking surrounding a multitude of topics. And her section on culture, specifically the chapter, The Privilege Principle, has had me in reflection mode since reading it almost a year and a half ago. My privilege means that I've never had to experience any issue around my race. However, As she states, not acknowledging it is being a part of the problem no matter how, quote, non-racist you are. And in this chapter, she talks about the dire need to not only acknowledge but address these issues immediately since they'll not, they won't magically disappear. In the previous episode, I talked about how in any situation, no matter how minuscule or major, I do my best to avoid causing conflict or engaging in things that might make other people feel uncomfortable, which is a privilege that I have. And I've also been lucky enough to hear Lovey speak most recently last Monday um, at the Together Live tour. And during her segment, she talked about how we are so afraid of discomfort that we would rather take discomfort over justice. And in this moment that she said this, I just... I shrunk in my chair, I think, because I knew that this was me and I knew that this injustice starts with the small moments. It starts with the moments of comments you hear others make that you let slide 
um, the small truths that aren't told. So when we get to the big truths, we don't have the language for it. Those moments that build into mountains until suddenly we live in a society like the one we have today. Where seven-year-olds think it's okay to tell a brown-skinned boy that his skin is ugly. So what can we do? Or I won't say we, but what can I do with my whiteness to do better? Lovey made the claim during her talk that we need to make the rooms that we're in uncomfortable. And that nobody will die from being uncomfortable, which was a very harsh realization for me to face because... I hate being uncomfortable no matter what situation I'm in. I call it like being uncomfy. And a lot of times I'll rake my discom- rank my discomfort um, on a 1 to 10 scale, which I need to stop doing because in reality, nothing is going to happen from being uncomfortable. Um, so I need to do better. And I don't know if I know what that better is yet in the big picture. I don't know if I know every actionable step I'm going to take to do better, but I know some benchmarks that I'll be moving toward. So instead of ignoring or not acknowledging in rooms, um, I'll speak up and stand up and make the room uncomfortable because I'm not going to die. And that's literally the absolute least thing I could do with the immense amount of privilege I was given in my life. Privilege that's built into every system I've ever interacted with. Um, I'd like to share a small passage from her book, Lovey's book, uh, to talk about white privilege in the world, its existence, and the importance of acknowledging it. Again, I myself would write something or try to articulate it, but as one of my pits this week, again, I feel that I'm not well-versed enough to speak upon the subject of race and specifically how my privilege affects other people in the way that Lovey so beautifully does. She's the expert of how it has affected her and every person of color just like her, so I'd like for her to speak about it to all of you um, through her book. Our privileges are the things not within our own control that push us forward and move us ahead from that starting line. Acknowledging them does not mean you are admitting to doing something to purposefully contribute to someone else's oppression or marginalization. It means you recognize that some parts of your identity puts you in a better position than others. It means something about you assists your progress in the race of life. It also means that whatever majority group you belong to has likely contributed to the oppression of another. Knowing our privilege does not make us villains, but it should make us more conscious about the parts we play in systems that are greater than us. It should make us be more thoughtful. It should humble us. We need to admit that some of us had a head start and aren't just flourishing on our strength alone. Again, you might not personally be responsible for the oppression of others, but you're amongst a group that is benefiting from said oppression. On the list of privileges, Whiteness is arguably the biggest one. This is not an accusation, but a fact that people need to recognize and acknowledge. If you are white in the United States, you carry a giant stamp of approval that has already made your life easier compared to others. White people are in positions of power in every societal structure and get to see themselves reflected everywhere. White privilege is not having to worry about speaking for your entire ethnicity 
because your behavior is perceived as yours alone, not representative of everyone who looks like you. It's characters in cartoons and video games that look like your kid, or at least only a few, ch- few shades away from them. Tights and undergarments that are labeled as, quote, nude, consider your skin the default, so it matches you, and you only, white people. Privilege is never even having to notice when you are reflected in movies or in boardrooms because you are always reflected. The most glaring aspect of white privilege is that when someone is described neutrally, without indicating color or ethnicity, more often than not, people will assume that that person is white. That assumption indicates an uncomfortable truth. In our society, whiteness determines humanity. Making an effort to be aware is something that my next guest talks about quite a bit, stating that the language that he uses and the choices that he makes in his day-to-day life as an educator, an artist, and an activist is, quote, not an attack on him, but doing a kind act for others. Sandro Murillo is a 6th and 7th grade ELA teacher at Sherman School of Excellence in Chicago, Illinois, and is one of the most intelligent people I think I've ever had the pleasure of communicating with, both obviously in this podcast, but also on a day-to-day basis. He is the type of person you want to be around because they make you want to do better and be better in every area of your life. And as dramatic as I'm sure I sound, I genuinely feel lucky to be in his presence, as I'm sure everyone who knows him, students, colleagues, friends and family, feel when they're around him. Conversations that I share with Sandro are a consistent peak for me. And this episode is definitely included in one of those peaks. I will say, though, that much of our dialogue here is shared with a cautious step in an effort to not offend anyone, especially on my part. And at times, my questioning, my statements, and my sentences are nearly incoherent and get lost off topic. And reflectively, I think it's genuinely because I'm at the point at 26 years old that I don't know the quote-unquote right thing to say or the quote-unquote right thing to ask because my privilege has afforded me just that the never having to worry about it, which is a humongous pit that I'll continue to work through. As I stated earlier, um, I'll continue to work, to put in work to do better, um, continue to read, continue to surround myself with people like Lovey and Sandro and so many others who push my thinking and help me continue to be a lifelong learner. Um, In this episode, in the middle and also at the end, you'll hear Sandro recommend some reading to all of you. And for those of you that make it to the end, which you all should do, um, I wanted to make sure that I had like a list of those books for you and the authors of those books so that you could get them um, from your local bookstore. Hopefully I have not checked all of them, so I don't know if they have them in stock, but they for sure have them on Amazon if you would like to check them out. Um, so the first book is an African-American and Latinx history of the United States by Paul Ortiz, Women, Race, and Class by Angela Davis, For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood and the Rest of Y'all Too, Reality, Pedagogy, 
and Urban Education by Christopher Emden, and White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism by Robin D'Angelo. I hope this episode makes you really reflect on yourself and the privileges that you have in our society and um, the role you play in your classroom if you're a teacher or in society in general um, in systemic oppression of people of color. Oh, my name is Sandra Murillo and I am a 6th and 7th grade English teacher in CPS, Chicago Public Schools. I consider myself to be a teaching artist, so although I have an educational background, I also have an artistic background. I've done a lot of work in the sphere of like arts, activism, and education, and stuff like that. And yeah, used to work in Berwyn, where y'all are at currently. <laughs> what? Tell us about the uh, building you work in now, or the district you so work in. So we just we talked about Berwyn and how majority of their teachers are white, and their students are. Having taught there, primarily Latino, right? You have you have some white students, some black students, right? And my school, the staff is students are like ninety percent black, and we have the remaining being uh, Hispanic or Latino, and then like zero point blank percent like white students. So a primarily black school um, that I work at, and the staff I would say very much mirrors that which is something that you notice right away, which is something that you also under- notice that has a positive impact on the relationships that are established. I am, first of all, like the only Latino male teacher there. Uh, there's another Latina that works in third grade. And then we have two other non-black teachers that work in the primary slash intermediate building. Can you talk a little bit about, like, I guess the experience in the classroom? that you had in Berwyn versus what you're currently experiencing? My experience in Berwyn was nice because I had students who were primarily Latino who could say and do a lot of things that I understood as their pieces, pieces of their culture, pieces of their life experience Mm -hmm. and not, uh, behavior concerns or disrespect right and when that happens it allows for relationships to be built because i'm not taking it as disrespect or i'm not taking it as a non-scholarly behavior so i'm not or i wasn't worrying about it and we could still move forward with the learning which is something that thinking back on it I'm glad it even ended up happening, right? I was still able to have a good relationship with students, but they were still able to create really nice pieces of work in relation to social justice. So that was cool. And it was very noticeable to me, right? Not to, I'm not going to speak for nobody else, but it was very noticeable to me that there were some students who just didn't have very positive perceptions of their teachers. They didn't feel like they were being heard or they were trusted or yeah they weren't being heard they couldn't trust their teachers or they couldn't really um be themselves in those kinds of classes so it was nice to have a space where that was kind of what could happen right where it was a teacher who who kind of knew where you were coming from which 
I noticed that allowed some students who weren't really on top of things outside of the room be able to kind of bring something to the table that was valuable and unlock some knowledge around social justice. Oh, yeah. And Berwin and I taught an elective class social justice. That was pretty cool. For what grades? Sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Um, was that an elective class or did they have to be? Um, so it was an elective, but they also had to take it. They were literally just put in every elective. It, or like, it was inevitable they were going to take every elective class by the end of the school year. The only difference was like if they chose band, that limited their elective choices because then band was like for a whole semester and not just... It was, it was weird. So but... does the, did it build on, like, did the curriculum build on itself or no? Like... For social justice? Yeah. Or like um, did sixth graders get the same thing as eighth graders? Because well, they only take it once. Well, that was actually a very... For me, for Sandro, the way I designed the class was very like student-driven, like a hundred percent like to its core because I had every single class even the so I had two sixth grade classes two seventh grade two eighth grade and I had every single class decide on a content they wanted to explore so mm. I literally had at the end of the day six different content things that we were discussing but they were all very much related anyway so there was like two like for example seventh grade wanted to do police brutality and then the other class wanted to do race and ethnicity so it's like okay well obviously those things are very related so Talked about that, and then gender equality was one of them. How did they come up with the topics? Did you give them something to choose from, or did they already have mm. like ideas of what they wanted to talk about? Well, they had ideas, but I took those ideas and I had to kind of categorize them. So we talked. We had like a very much, we had a very democratic, quote unquote, like way of deciding what we wanted to do. So it started off by me introducing them to how did the class start. Because it was a couple days of just like, there we go. It was a couple days of community building, getting to know each other and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And then the last day of like that, getting to know each other stuff was like defining what identity was. And then after we did that, we talked about like what social justice meant. And after they just, after they like meant, right, air quotes around that because it has a lot of different meanings. But after they decided what it meant, then we were like, okay, so now what are some things going on? in the world that you think relate to this definition that as you understand it. And then we talked about ideas and then I kind of organized them for them to choose from, like on a like multiple choice, like A B C D type of thing. And then they chose it and so So what did you end up defining social justice as? It's a definition that I took from the National Association of Social Workers. And social justice we defined it as the, the view that everyone deserves equal economic, political, social rights and opportunities. So Defining what economic meant, defining what political meant, and social, and then what is a right and what's an opportunity, putting that in our own words now that we know those unfamiliar vocabulary terms, and then talked about things that interest them related to those things. Did you ever talk about that in like a PD? Did anyone ever have you present on that? Or... Um, did anyone ever? No, I mean, not necessarily. I've talked about it once. I did do like a workshop, quote unquote, for this regional queer conference that, that happens in the Midwest called uh, Mumble Tech. I did do like a little workshop on uh, art creative experiences in the elementary classroom and how that allows for students to kind of not only explore their identity, but make it right so like also discover like discover what it is and then develop it and that was at and that workshop was at a regional queer conference that took place last two years ago actually at uh and navy pier 
So that was cool. So reason I'm Something asking wants. is one, we when you taught in that district or that district is primarily white teachers teaching to um, children of color who are not. Yeah. Uh huh. And so, do you think that or adults in general could define what? political economics rights versus opportunity do you think people could define that well for, first at my school for sure at the school you work at now. at the school i work at now i have a, a lot of colleagues who are literally all-stars and they um for sure could tell you the meaning of that most adults maybe i think a lot of my friends probably could and then like maybe i would say adults in berwin could maybe give it to you um but i feel like if you were to say can you define social justice i feel like that word ha- already can be perceived very negatively by some people even though it's not in any way shape or form a negative thing so you can have a lot of varying responses but but yeah i think overall people could define it adults could define it but it would definitely have a lot of different understandings because i feel like social justice some people Take that, take that idea and they make it about themselves and don't understand that social justice is literally something that's so much bigger than you, the individual, you know? It's about your history. It's about um, current events and what's going on around you at the same time. And it's really confusing, which is cool. Do you feel comfortable giving an, an example of what you mean when you say you didn't take what they were doing hmm. as disrespectful or non-scholarly work do you feel comfortable giving an example um man i will say behavior that was like for example students making comments or saying things to me in spanish which i would understand right away we would laugh at we would laugh about it and then move on and i can't say that that might be perceived the same way in another classroom right Mm -hmm. Um, which is, I think, all I could say, right? So, yeah, just saying things about, saying, saying things of that nature, which allowed me to be like, LOL, all right, now sit down, be quiet. You know what I'm saying? Let's get forward. All right, cool. And they sit down. Um, or, or even just engaging in discussion that required questioning me, uh, which was really mm-hmm. important. Yeah. And you can't always... And school is not the place, really, that's designed for you to question your teacher 100%. And I tried my hardest, right, not to take offense when students question me, but it's important to do that because um, that's how I think social justice issues kind of get pushed forward is if you're always questioning the norm, if you're always questioning the way things are. Um, And Berwyn really lent itself to that just because of the technology that was there and, yeah, it was allowing us to all really be be discussion partners you know what i'm saying and as opposed to like some kind of lecture it only got really luxury when it needed to be um for example when i introduced things like the black panther party where it's okay to sit down for like a couple minutes let me just tell you these like little facts about them and then i promise we can start experimenting with what we learn in a minute but um but yeah so things so i would say those two things right so like uh maybe speaking spanish or saying some some things that would be questioned by other adults, but wasn't really by me because I knew what they were saying. It wasn't a big deal. And it's like, oh, well, that was funny in case now let's go. And being able to be questioned and engage in these discussions that 
students were kind of partners and not really like uh, the listeners of they were also responding to things too do um do you think that you created that environment because that's how you like to learn as Uh, like you um, experiment with what you're learning man i don't know i think i think i created that because I because just you saw. Did create, I mean, you yeah, did yeah, create yeah. that, and and that's like a really powerful thing. Mm. To... I think I I just did that because I I just didn't really have that when I was growing up at all. So not really because I saw it anywhere, but because I didn't. Right. So and, and I I went to school in Texas, so well, very rigid, like and boring, and the only place that I really got to do what I wanted was like my art class, but that wasn't even a thing until like my last two years of high school. You know, mm-hmm. so it was just like oh, very. Yeah, kind of a lot. It was maybe a couple of assignments my senior year that were like finally like, yeah, we'll create a movie poster for this. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, or I'm trying to think. But yeah, nothing. That, yeah, I just didn't have a lot of that. So I, I was just trying to. I took the opportunity to literally upturn the classroom upside down with some practices and with some projects and stuff. Cause like, that's what social justice is. Like, just making like yeah questioning the status quo and making sure you're not maintaining the status quo you're making it better you know so how could a teacher translate that into ELA or math or like create that same type of an environment um in their classroom or what I I guess what plays into that what goes into that what dynamics need to be there yeah yeah well first of all understanding your positionality as a person right so and what that means for your for certain spaces you enter. And by positionality, I just mean like understanding the context of where you are and like your own context. So in regard to race, right? Like if you are this white teacher in a room of students who are not, and let's say, for example, you're in a classroom of primarily Latino students, um, uh, students who are brown, you when you come into that space, it's important to think about the weight of what you say and do as it's informed by the historical like oppression and power and privilege that comes with being white and if you don't you end up either not doing anything meaningful or causing a lot of damage and neither of those things as a teacher is okay you know what i'm saying and so and i think this touches on your last episode which we've talked about and it's not like anything during your episode that was said that was like bad, right? Like, oh my God, like the peak in the pit is canceled, right? It's not even, it wasn't even anything like that. My takeaway was that there was a good opportunity for you and your aunt to talk about whiteness and to talk about um, the privilege and the power that they might, that your aunt might have as a, as a white parent for two uh, non-white children. And nothing meaningful was really said, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that when you're in the classroom, to make things meaningful or to avoid that, to f- further being that oppressive colonizer, right? You have to think about the things that you say and do or the status quo that you serve as a white person and turn it, and literally just turn it around, right? And it's so hard because it's something that I'm having a hard time doing. As a non-black teacher of black students, I also have, and as a male, I also have these 
I also, yeah, have these identities. I have a context that also engages in some colonization and some oppression of students. And I have to turn it around while still engage in learning, while still being on pace, while still, uh, you know, following the rules and meeting deadlines, which don't really go hand in hand 100% of the time. But I couldn't, I couldn't really sleep at night, I guess, if, if I wasn't tr- at least trying to be mindful of my identity and how it impacts my students. So how do you do that? And how do I do that? Well, my words. I mean, and a lot of people, which is, if if this is included, right? But a lot of, I said last time, people make social justice about themselves when really it's about everything else around you. So if I make sure that I understand that being mindful of my words isn't at the expense of me, because it really isn't, right? It's about, it's not at the expense of me. As much as people love to say like, oh, well, don't police my language or don't tell me what to say and how to say it. Like, I don't really think of it that way. I, I just like to think of it as doing a kind act for others, right? When I watch my language. So just the way that I interact with students and give them directives and, and encourage them with their work and, or, and, or correct them, you know, um, uh, I'm trying to think of an example and one that comes to mind is when I'm kind of met with some anger, right? Cause I, you know, some of my students have a really hard time letting go of what happens outside of the school when they enter. So when it's literally like, you know, I'll walk in and, and students are kind of lined up or ready to go. And then I, I, you know, meet the, meet, meet eyes with another student and they're already kind of like, like, what's the word? Like they're already looking mad. They're just, they just look mad, you mm-hmm. know? And, and even though I'm looking at them and I'm smiling and I'm saying good morning, they're still kind of like this, you know, any other teacher would be like, uh, don't look at me like that. Like, please be respectful. Like, fix your face type situation, mm-hmm. right? And so you have to be, maybe maybe I don't want my student to look at me like that every morning. Uh, but the way you approach that is, is everything all right? Like, it's going to be a good day today. Let's go ahead and pass forward. Like, let's go to the, let's go to PE. You know what I'm saying? So I feel like small instance like that, uh, giving redirection in the classroom, you know, uh, especially when it comes to when students engage in some some heated discussions or arguments and they start to get into these like little disagreements, I feel like it's important to not place blame on anyone right away. So having to kind of de-escalate those situations is a big challenge. It's something I obviously have not perfected yet, but just being able to be like, what's even happening? You know, like what's, what's the issue here? Instead of kind of jumping to conclusions and assuming that one student is causing the problem because then that is where as a teacher your biases can influence your decisions you know what i mean where now if you're not acknowledging your bias or you're not acknowledging the power and privilege you have the power and privilege you have you might see yourself always blaming the boys or you might see yourself always blaming the black students you know Mm -hmm. and so how can you be mindful of and practice all the time ways to interact with students so you're not literally oppressing them as an adult (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) <laughs> how do, right. what can teachers do or how do okay. they make sure, like, I mean, what can anyone do really? Yeah, yeah. So, Not just educators, but that's what we're like. Yeah, yeah. Of. Well, obviously read a book, right? So there's like a, <laughs> like, it's funny, but it's also like, that's what's helped me. I yeah. mean, one of my favorite books that I've read that um, was really powerful was um, Women, Race, and Class by Angela Davis. And that was super helpful, especially not only in understanding how 
race has played a part in American history, but gender as well, and how women, black women specifically, are this especially oppressed group in the United States. So, um, really thinking about that and incorporating that into my teaching, right? So, what am I doing to empower black girls in my classroom? And so, step one is I need to avoid always telling them to be quiet, right? Or saying that they are too loud, because we all understand that there are stereotypes towards black women for being too loud, right? So if I see young ladies being expressive in my classroom, I it's it's my job as the teacher to to engage with it, right? And to acknowledge it, validate how they feel, and then ask them to let's get let's get back to the learning. Like I understand for example, I understand that you're mad. We need to get back to our learning. Do you need to take a break? Because it's not a problem. And I always make sure I say it's not a problem because a lot of students rightfully so, think that they are being targeted, right? And that any type of argument is kind of a threat to them. So I always have to remind them, like, I'm not coming from this place of, of like, negativity. So I always, it's like, like, it's not everything. I usually say it a lot. Like, it's not a problem. Like, if you want to step out, if you want to go, I have, a, like, a library set up with, like, a little um, chair and, like, a bunch of pillows and a rug. So it's like, if you need to go to the library, like, you can. It's not a problem. We do, we do need to get back to the learning. So, but instead of saying like, you're being too loud, like be quiet, voice level zero, get to work. Um, why are you yelling? Or it's not that serious. You know, just saying things that are able to, yeah, right. Just saying things that are able to validate how they feel. So that's one thing I can think of that's like more concrete, right? So acknowledging the stereotypes that are present in society and how, what are teachers doing to not maintain that status quo? Do you, you think I mean? that other educators in your building do the same thing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, I feel like um, they're very mindful of the community that our students live in and how it impacts them as learn as people, right, and learners. So I do know that they're very, or and, and they are trying to be very restorative with um, how their classrooms kind of work, right? Uh, not being punitive with a lot of things, giving students opportunities to succeed um, despite what might be going on. So, yeah, yeah, I would say I see that in my building a lot, especially in my middle school team. I see them more often than the others, and I I do know that, yeah, they practice those kinds of things in the classroom. So generally speaking, I, I we could use the school that you work in now or the school that you worked in before. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, do you think that students are are receptive to that? Like how, like versus what else you were talking about? Like the yeah, like sit down, be quiet. I'm learning that those those kinds of things work for different students. So there are some students where you could give them flexibility and a little bit of more freedom, and some take a break, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but, and it can still kind of hinder their learning and then you can end up enabling the student and not helping them kind of develop these tools to be successful outside of the classroom and in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are times where they can respond really well to let it go, sit down, get to work. And it's like, okay. And Although it doesn't allow them at the moment to kind of engage with whatever's going on around them, it still helps them engage in the work 
And then it, as a teacher, it is your responsibility to kind of at a later time, like, okay, so what was happening there? Like, now that you're done with the activity, can you please fill out a reflection? Let me know what's going on. Um, but I've seen a lot of times where the structure and the sit down, be quiet, do your work doesn't work. And I've also seen moments where the, okay, take a break, uh, let's talk about it, doesn't work. So it really depends, and you really have to understand what your students need. If your mm-hmm. students need flexibility and understanding, you give it to them. And if your students need structure and nurturing, you give it to them. You know what I mean? Um, I will say a lot of my students now need need structure paired up with some nurturing, right? So you got to give them these high expectations, and you have to help them succeed and meet them. Right. I can't just say what the expectation is and let them kind of fend for themselves and get there. I have to set the expectation, that standard of excellence and help them get there as well. So don't just finish numbers one, two, three, four and five. But I see you're really upset. Can you get to number three and then we can talk about how you're feeling? And then we could talk about this argument you got in with so and so before class started. Just go ahead and do numbers one through three. So... You, in the beginning, circling back, you talked about how in your class last year, a lot of students didn't feel comfortable with, mm-hmm. um, in, in their other classes, whether that was questioning their teacher, whether that was having conversation. I don't know if you were yeah. explicit about like what exactly they weren't comfortable with. Um, but if you could talk a little bit more about that and also, do you think that relates to how they're being disciplined by their teachers and then those like that structural oppression that's like already in place. Yeah. I think last year, a lot of the biggest thing that I got was that, was that students didn't really feel like heard or listened to in other classes, the way they felt in mine and granted, right? Like there's things that some teachers have to make sure of so they can, like I said, be on pace and meet these deadlines. And then I find myself today also being like, okay, but, can you talk about this later? Like, I really want us to finish like what we're doing right now. And I, I, I see myself doing that as well. Um, in certain parts of my day. Um, and la- and so last year, I think when students told me like, yeah, you know what? They called me Sandro, by the way, like they didn't call me this, Mr. Murillo or whatever, but like, you know, Sandro, like, I just want to let you know, like, I, I like your class a lot because yeah, I just feel like heard and you know, you actually listen to us. Like when we're saying things, you're like writing them down. I've been in classrooms where I have seen what you're talking about, where it's like, okay, just sit down yeah, or stop talking. Or I've been in classroom. I mean, every classroom I go in, I mean, I'm white. Every classroom I go in, the teacher is white. Yeah. And, and the students are not. And it's like, are we like, do they not feel heard because we're not oh. creating environments? Probably. Yeah. I think, I think what can have a, well, firstly, like a lot of work that I've done before I became a teacher, like at DePaul, um, in the college of education, outside of the college of education, like with some really cool professors that I got to know, I did a lot of work around like cultural works by people ages zero to 12 and what their, the weight of their voice is like. And children's ages zero to 12 are already this kind this group that is like oppressed right as as children they don't they aren't treated the way adults are treated obviously so just as an adult there are things that we do to children that make them feel like they are not heard or they're 
their voice is a lot smaller than mm-hmm. ours. Um, and you, it's also important to take in consideration that extra layer that is your gender or your race, um, or your ethnicity and nationality, right? Like, um, taking note of what all of that might mean. Um, because if a student is going to notice if the classroom I have first period is with the white teacher and they're always telling me to be quiet and then I have another classroom later or I have, a, I have another teacher later on in life, right, that is not white, that is not saying these things all the time. They're going to make that connection. You know what I'm saying? So I feel like um, there's a lot that can go into making a student not feel hurt. Because school today is is something that isn't very much a place where a student can be expressive, yeah. feel comfortable, feel confident. Exactly. That's not really. It doesn't lend itself well. It really today. doesn't. Mm-hmm. Not right. At least not right now. Not today. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of spaces where teachers are really trying and they're really doing their best to highlight student voice and uh, give it a platform, which is amazing. Um, so. So that's nice. And I think and I think that's the thing, right? How are you giving a platform to student voice? A lot of things that I like to do to help my students feel like they are heard is and this is and this is what I'm saying, it's a very special situation, right? But I I don't have any kids and I get paid more money right now than I did before. Uh and so one thing I do, I have tables, right, and table points, table with the most points, blah blah blah, right? They get points for everyone being on task, or they get points for everyone being here. They get mm-hmm. points for uh, working well together, reading independently when they're supposed to, right? So, oh, I see table one that 100% give them a table point. Um, and at the end of the week, the table with the most points gets a either the opportunity to come up for lunch on Monday, or they get a treat, some type of like food item uh, delivered by me, right? So it's like, well, what, like, what do you want? Like, I got you. Like, what is it? You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, uh, can I have uh, a cookie? It's like, okay. And like, I come to school Monday. Here you go. <laughs> it's like, and it's like during the lunchtime, right? Or yeah, can I have a bag of Takis? I'm like, yeah, sure. Like, Why not? You know? Like, well, what do you want? <laughs> you know? And I bring it to them. And, and, that, and that has a lot of, right? A lot of, that's a special circumstance. Like, obviously, there are a lot of restrictions at some schools for what you can give your students, right? Not everyone yeah, has the, the financial means to do lunch that. Lunch doesn't require any finances. Like, you sitting and sharing a meal with them doesn't also require true. anything other than your time. Right. And so, and that's another option, too, that works out just fine, too. Cool. So, maybe there is a week that I'm a little tight. Like, you know what? Let's just come up to lunch. And then we can just hang out. And then we're just talking. And then I find out that, you know... I find out that the two students that sit at this table are literally neighbors, right? To live across the street. Yeah, I heard his mom yelling at him because he didn't take the dog out. It's like, haha, like, oh my god, Jay, why don't you take the dog out? Wake up early. You know what I'm saying? Like, things like that. And then, and then it lends itself to students feeling like they're heard. So maybe we didn't have time to talk about it, right? Like when we enter the classroom, like, no, go ahead, sit down right now because we have to get started on our work. Mm-hmm. But then later on, um, we have the opportunity to talk, you know? So yeah, just doing your things that, uh, can help your students feel like, you're listening right so in and, the, and like really quickly it's not oh, like i say because this is where i would lose them they wouldn't care let's say i said yeah and the table with the most table points gets a bag of fruit snacks and that's the same thing every week for the whole school year because mm-hmm. eventually it's going to be like well i don't want fruit snacks this week so i'm not going to meet the expectation for these table points 
But for the rest of the school year, it's going to be, well, it's literally whatever you want on Monday, I will show up and I will bring it. You know what I'm saying? So um, it's helpful classroom management wise, but it's also helpful in having students feel, yeah, like they have that, they have that say, they have that choice. So they get to go ahead and be a, yeah, to have a say on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Initially, the conversation around this or the reason that I wanted to talk to you about this was because on the last episode, I talked with Mm -hmm. my aunt, spoke on international adoption, Mm -hmm. and my thought going into it was that we would only talk about international adoption, but because Luke and Noah are internationally adopted, it's hard to talk about that without talking about their race because it Mm -hmm. comes up in conversation. Um, but my point to you was that we don't need two white women talking about race. We right. need people of color talking about race. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that, we talked in the last episode, we talked a lot about like, um, assignments and well, right, yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess first, like the assignments and the, the projects that yeah. were created by some of the teachers that my cousins had or whatever or not even by the teachers but maybe by the district or just like generally speaking mm-hmm. what we have like star of the week is like everybody does that do you know what i mean <laughs> yeah, like yeah, yeah bring in a baby picture or whatever i remember so that. that's not necessarily specific to race mm-hmm. um but generally speaking in regard to assignments how can educators be more aware of things like that. I mean, because you use a, right. like a scripted curriculum at your school. Yes. So <laughs> yeah. I th- I feel like there's a whole bunch to unpack within that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also then uh, additional assignments that are given to students, like how yeah. can teachers... Well, I, I think, well, for me, because I'm somebody... So this school year is all about me adapting structure into my life because I'm somebody that really just didn't not only respond well to rigidity and structure, but I'm also somebody who just loves being creative and doing what you want to do. Doing what I want to do. But, um, but this year I'm making it all about, um, how can I benefit from structure? Right. And one of the things that's, um, but I'm going to go against that for a second, because one of the things that I'm doing to kind of keep that part of my of my personality alive, the part that doesn't like structure, is I'm just, I literally look for pockets of time where I know that there's something I can literally just do whatever I want and I make time for that, right? So, for example, one thing I do every Friday, I I started doing it maybe the third or fourth week of school, is like Free Write Friday. And so it's just five to ten minutes of, uh, it's during our social studies block, but it's like during the last five to ten minutes of class. And I just have them write whatever. Or they can respond to a prompt that I have. And I use that time. I use those prompts to make sure that I am being mindful of my students. Uh, I guess race as well, but also their, their reality, right? So I'm just, cause yeah, cause I, you know, there are students in my room who don't have their biological parents with them, you know? who don't live with their biological parents. So I can't have a writing prompt that's like, what is a day in the life of like, like mm-hmm. with you, with your mom and your dad? Mm-hmm. Cause then I'm going to have like 10 hands go up. Well, uh, I have, yeah, I don't see my mom. I don't see my dad. Like I don't, you know what I'm saying? I mm-hmm. live with my aunt. So, okay. Uh, well, okay, everyone. And then the classroom kind of gets, uh, 
I guess out of pocket because then everyone's now it's like, yeah, well, what what do I write? Yeah, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Even though they have that option to write about whatever they want, it could still lend itself to becoming 20 hands raised and a bunch of confusion because they don't feel like this assignment was made for them. Does that make sense? So getting to know your students first and foremost before you even try to be creative with activities like that is important. Uh, and two, I think also... And for me, I think I'm having a hard time really talking about this because a lot of it is like things that I try to do all the time. So it becomes like common sense, you know, or it becomes so like a daily practice. So it's really it's hard. It's right? hard to make it a concrete like list of things to do. Right. Mm -hmm. But but one thing that I also want to add is like just being mindful of like and we said it before. Right. But just being mindful of who you are and who they are and just that the, the history and the context of everything that's been going on. Right. So I can't just, cause I, cause I Googled, right? Like, oh, fun writing prompts from middle school. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, ooh, like that one won't fly really well. You know, um, mm -hmm. oh, that one's not very interesting. Or I'm trying to think of one. I remember I read one and I was like, yeah, well, I'm, I would never do that in my classroom. I'm trying to think. I, but I feel like, I don't know, white teachers aren't just generally speaking, aren't aware of it though. Like they, yeah. like I'll say I, instead of saying they, I would read the prompt. I wouldn't. Like, oh, this is so cute. Like, right. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's, what's hard. Right. That's what's hard because, and here's the, here's the primary issue because one, you as a person, just like anybody there, whatever your experiences are, you consider the norm, right? Yeah. Like, well, of for example, um, me growing up with, I grew up with four siblings, right? But now I have uh, six. But growing up with four siblings, like reality and the, was okay. Make sure you don't eat too much at dinner because you want to make sure that you have enough for everybody, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Where that might not be the reality for some people, mm -hmm. um, especially if you grow up as an only child. Now, the, I think where the problem, the problem, where yeah, where the problem is, is with white teachers i think the the issue can arise where you have your life experience is the norm for us society mm -hmm. right a lot of the things that you um experience other people have experienced too mm -hmm. so you don't think about other realities because the one that you've experienced has been validated so many times everywhere all the time by everyone mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying in everything in, in every everything capacity, yeah everything in music and art yeah, in everything. books in movies in the mall you know what i'm saying like it's it's validated everywhere so it's hard for people who have mainstream experiences to think about experiences outside of those and that's the biggest challenge for white teachers because one, they have a bunch of students who have, you're, you're dealing with like 30 different realities, one. And two, if they are not white realities, you have to, you yeah, you have to step out of your own. You have to come out of your own experiences and think about theirs. Um, and that's, and that's something that, because like, and I, and I do not, so one thing, and I, I haven't done it with y'all either, right? Like one thing I do not like to do is talk about the trauma of my students. So that's something that is making it hard to kind of give an example of sure, some things yeah. right now. Yeah. But like, but I think just with the parent situation is for Free Write Friday, I cannot have a prompt that is solely about nuclear families because I know that it's not the case for the majority of my students. 
It's a little bit easier for me too, though, because I didn't really grow up with a nuclear family, so yeah. that's different. I guess I'm special, right? But, um, but yeah, but you empathize with that as a norm because you didn't have that, though. Right. So, so yeah, I think that's. I think we kind of. I think we found this essential idea of the podcast, right? So we we have to when your view and your reality is mainstream, you don't think about it, you don't think outside of it. So then, when you have to deal with others, it just becomes hard. Not only to engage with it but also to empathize with it too though because i feel like a lot of teachers sympathize though with their students right they feel sorry for that um can you talk about yeah that? like like all oh, these poor students you know or or like oh i'm so sorry that happened like oh that's so sad <laughs> it's like yeah it's sad but but what are you <laughs> But, but what are you going to do for me now that I'm here at school? You know what I'm saying? Like, so with me, I think, so, so sympathy and empathy are obviously different. They are different things. With, with sympathy, it's very much detached. It's very much, uh, like you not understanding. So the only thing you can do is feel bad. And the primary issue with, with sympathy or feeling sorry for somebody, um is is one you kind of like enable them right it kind of it can enable some behaviors too it's like oh like that's so sad i'm so sorry and so they realize okay well i'm gonna get that attention every time every time that happens so who cares like let me you know what i'm saying um and with empathy with you understanding how somebody feels right or with you being able to recognize emotions in other people um kind of helps with like bring some unity in the situation you're coming you're coming to the student more as like an ally or an advocate when you're when you're empathizing with them and not necessarily uh coming to their like how do i explain it so when i think of sympathy i literally imagine like someone leaning down and being like oh like like when you look at like a puppy or something you know what i'm saying but when when you're when it's empathy i imagine that as like your like I, it's so ugly this is so weird but like, i imagine empathy as like two people sitting on a bench at the park like like it'll everything will be okay i understand how you feel you know mm-hmm. um as opposed to oh that really stinks that's so sad like looking down at something you know what i'm saying so i think it can be very sympathy can be very damaging to to student relationships because they'll feel like it can it can result in students feeling like no one can help them you know what i'm saying like no one like no one's really uh or some people can help them and then they're going to always look to be saved and then it also develops this complex in a teacher that they are these like saviors mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying and so it's like well no you're not you're not saving nobody like don't do that that's not that's not even your job you know what i'm saying uh i also keep saying you know what i'm saying so <laughs> but- do you think that it is innately built in for white teachers to be sympathetic instead of empathetic um is it innately built in no to, no way but but i do i think, don't know if i worded that right no 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 but so this is very complicated right but i think that it can increase your chances of perceiving yourself as a savior no meaning like do you think that white teachers use sympathy 
instead of empathy because they can't empathize with the situation or they don't like (laughs) yes that's a better uh, yeah i like that question yes right i think that just like i think that with teachers who don't uh look like or have experienced similar things to their students yeah all you can do is sympathize because you don't know what that's like you can't empathize with it you you can't understand where that emotion or feeling comes from Mm -hmm. um so yeah and so when you think about what makes up your identity and how that inhibits you from experiencing things and therefore it inhibits your ability to empathize with certain things so like you know, for example, like growing up with, uh, growing up in a, in a, like, in a middle class family, but there was a lot of very tough moments, right? Where my mom did lose her job and we didn't, uh, I'm not saying like we didn't know when we were going to eat next, but I mean, like we, there were moments where it's like, oh, like we gotta, uh, we have to make sure we have to ration what we have because we don't know when mom's going to get a job. You know what I'm saying? Um, we growing up in with mainly my mom, right? My parents divorced. My dad was detached from us for a long time. So I can sympathize with like, yeah, like I know what it's like to be hungry. Like I understand a hundred percent. I understand what it's like to be very mad at your dad, right? Or to have very negative feelings towards men in general, which it kind of goes back to, um, right? What am I doing for black girls in my classroom? Like, I understand, I understand what it's like to hate men, one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand what it's like to be hurt by men. So it's like, when I met with this aggression and when I met with attitude, as they would call it, right? I'm not even, it doesn't even, like, yeah, I'm going to correct it. Eventually I have to get them on track. We got to get back to class, but. When I go home, I'm like, oh my God, that student was so rude to me. Da, da, da. Like, it's like, mm-hmm. I get, like, I get it. <laughs> like, I understand. You know what I'm saying? Cause I'm sure as a man, I do a bunch of things that are probably annoying to these girls. You know what I'm saying? So, um, I don't know how we got there though, but, <laughs> um, talking about, oh, experiences. Yeah. Like I can, I can have sympathy more than I think more than the next, more than the next person because, or empathy. I say sympathy. Yeah. Yeah. I could have empathy more than the next person because of the experiences I've had. And it's a price to pay, right? Um, and it allows for me to to empathize and to build a relationship as opposed to sympathize and really create the opposite of relationship. Like you're creating a detachment, essentially. Yeah. So talk about, so in a moment where someone doesn't know, hasn't experienced something, let's say even take, I mean, not take Reese out of it, but say if it's peer-to-peer, yeah. adult peers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's happening. Like, and they don't, and they have not experienced this situation. Mm. How do they? What? What do they? What do they do? Leave. Uh, right. <laughs> quit. In my social justice classroom, I set up an ofrenda, and if you know what that mm-hmm. is, this is part of the problem, right? But I had an ofrenda for uh, victims of not victims. I had an ofrenda for young boys who were murdered by the police. Right, because we were studying police brutality, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Hey, everybody! Like, you know, I got this friend set up in the back. Like, go ahead. If you want to contribute to it? Cool. If not, not a problem. I just want you to know that's what these pictures are. We're going to be studying these people, their lives, and what happened, and stuff like that. Right? And to me, it doesn't look like a regular t- desk. It doesn't look like a regular surface. There's like a a serape on it. There's flowers, candles, and I lit, and pictures of people mm-hmm. and we had a uh, 
my room was being used, I think it was NWEA testing, and my room was being used uh, for that. I wasn't in my room, I was going some, I don't know, I was a floater, I think that was. And um, the teacher that was borrowing it, well, I walk in and there's like five stacks of paper on the ofrenda for students to pick up and like color or to do something when they're done with their test. And I walk in and I'm, and I'm, and I'm literally shook. I'm just like, like, what are you doing? You know what I'm saying? Like, and the, my room was very big at Heritage and there's a lot of surfaces to put papers on. And so I'm like, come on, like the five square feet, that's this ofrenda you're going to put papers on that it clearly looks, I mean, to me, right? My experiences, it looks like it's not something to put papers on. So when you're engaging with adults that don't understand experiences outside of their own, I think what I think what I would have liked is some accountability and acknowledging that they did something that was wrong. You know what I'm saying? And, and I that didn't happen. And I remember the conversation where it's like, oh, okay, like, yeah, I just wanted to put the paper somewhere for the students to reach. I was like, well, I know that. Like, I know that's what you were trying to do. Because that's something I do every day as well. Like, I also make sure I put papers somewhere that are accessible to students. Um, and so, but there was, I don't, I don't remember any kind of accountability. Well, excuse, oh, please excuse me, Mr. Murillo. Like, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize this was an altar on the new day, like my ball, you know? So like, yeah, okay, cool. Um... But yeah, that was, and then, and then it was ugly because I was, it was my first year and I'm coming in the middle of the school year. So I'm not going to be this like, what are you doing? Get your papers. Off. You know what I'm saying? Or like, excuse me, please remove these papers at this moment right now. So, so that's an example of, I think, a peer to peer or like an adult to adult situation where. Did you say something? Um, I did because it happened a second time. <laughs> I was like, oh, cause I remember, I remember we, it happened the first time and I was like, I was like, okay, Sandra, how can you put positive, frame this positively, and how can you make it an I statement, right? So I was like, uh, I was like, um, hi, so you can always put papers on this counter here if you want, so students can come and get them. And then that's when the teacher was like, oh, well, I just wanted to put them here so all the students can grab them. Okay, cool. No accountability, no kind of, like, my fault. All right, bet. But then I gave them, like, I was like, oh, okay, cool. Well, then you can go ahead. I don't know if you know this, but the there's like a little carts in our classrooms. It's like, well, this opens up and it makes the surface bigger. So you can put them here too. And I show them how the the cart opens up and you can make it a place to put five stacks of papers. Um, and then I come back the next time because NWA testing is more than one day. I come back and they still do it. And then I was like, okay, so so this is an altar and I tell the students not to put anything on here because this is supposed to be like an ofrenda, like for people who passed away. So you can put these papers on this counter <laughs> where students can get them. That'd be great. Oh, well, this is the last day of NWA testing. So, okay. And I was like, oh, I was like, all right, cool, 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 <laughs> whatever. Like, who cares? Like, well, not who cares, but that was me deflecting. But like, yeah, like, okay, you know what? All right. So... I'm not saying that's how every white person acts, right? I'm not saying that's how... Uh, but I also think it's very interesting that if you were in a classroom and you put papers down on somewhere that wasn't supposed to be there, I think generally speaking, most white teachers or teachers, yeah, white teachers would say, um, I don't want that there because of this. And then they would, whatever, to you. Yeah. But instead, like in in your role... 
yeah. instead of you saying that you didn't want it there because because it, was it wasn't honoring the dead you said yeah. if you could like if it's okay with you yeah. like if you could move this over here right and i think it, that's interesting too especially because and i know there's other dynamics to that right yeah like, right i mean you, not only was i it was my first year <laughs> there but i was also i was like fresh out of depaul so i was like i'm 23 yeah i'm like hi don't you think that's interesting though i, I mean think, yeah do you, would, do you think that would have changed i think it's interesting no. because like what what would have changed like the way i responded mm -hmm. i don't know because i i'm also one thing i also i'm trying to work on in myself is like how i engage with adults at work because that was something i wasn't really good at 19 or 18 through 22 so having working in a school building i was like okay i gotta make sure that like i act right <laughs> you know what i mean like oh, what's that like you know what i'm saying so which is also, I think, another reason why I empathize with my students, too, because I, pers I personally uh -huh. struggle with authority a lot, and I personally struggle with uh, people telling me what to do, so I get it. I really do with a lot of my students. But I think, like, I do want to go back to or talk about um, how everything was kind of about them in that moment, or in any sometimes, not sometimes, so in situations where someone has made a mistake, especially, like, uh, invading some kind of cultural boundary, which, first of all, historically is colonization, which is why it's so angry. It makes me so angry. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's all about them, the situation, right? Um, and obviously, the person that's being... The person that the offense is at the expense of, right, is not being taken into consideration, is something that I, I also try to make sure I... I think of in myself too just because I'm, I'm i'm a male right so there's a lot of things that i do and a lot of parts of myself that is validated and mirrored in society and i got to make sure that yeah i don't always have to um or like for example so what i don't know how to explain it but there are moments where people's privileges prevent them from thinking about others and right. it's frustrating because I I try my best to think about how my privileges affect others because it's not always about me. So when I sometimes see adults, especially um, educators, especially, and it's frustrating. It's like, oh, can you just make it not about you for two seconds? Like, let's talk about um, how you affected others right now. You know what I'm saying? You think that's a personality trait or privilege yeah. on top of a personality trait? Um. Oh, I think. I think it can be both, right? It can be a personality trait, and your privilege can make it worse. I, well, okay, I do always make things about me, right? Because I'm a very needy person. So it's like uh, when I was going through like my tooth pains in the summer, I was literally all about how my teeth were hurting all the time. Um, right now, my contacts are hurting me. So lately, all I've been saying is, oh, my eyes hurt. And like, everything's about me, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that personality trait in me, which is like needy, can be influenced by my privilege as a man to be at the center of the conversation all the time. And so what I need to make sure is when I'm at home with my partner and my sister, it's not always about my pain. Like, okay, well, what else are, like, how, am I making enough room for other people to express how they're feeling right now? Probably not. Because I keep saying how, oh, my eyes hurt. Or like, yeah, I know what you mean. My eyes hurt too right now. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> shut up, Sandro. Like, we know your eyes hurt. You said it yesterday. You're going to say it tomorrow. Yeah, what space am I giving to others to, you know, do stuff that I'm doing as well? How am I not at the center all the time? Mm -hmm. One example. Exhibit A, I guess. But can I 
ask or play devil's advocate that yeah. like this is a place like this is one of the places where it's probably okay to do that like a little more <laughs> um, out of like yeah. right because like it's around people that like love you and like, oh want yeah, yeah, to yeah caretake for you you know what i'm saying like yeah totally it, yeah it can be one of those places so sure. it's not it's not like you i mean yes <laughs> yes to, if it's if it. it's always 24 7 but that's not the case Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. This is one of those places where it's okay. So, but, I mean, obviously, right, how am I going to get help if I'm not talking about it at home? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but, yeah, you're right. But with that said, if it is constantly about you or always about you. That's annoying. Because I don't want anyone to think as soon as I walk through the door, it's about Sandro. You know, that's not. And that's the thing. When you walk in the door. Which it feels that way in your life, right? Because it's your, it's literally your like eyes looking into the world. It's literally your reality. It feels that way when you walk into a space. It's, it's about you. And how can we, you know, not, right? Like, how can it, it's not a, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to explain, but like, if you just think about it, I think a good step, step one, um, is, yeah, when you enter a room, just remember it's always about, it's not about you, buddy. Like, just walk in, have a seat, let's get to work. You know what I'm saying? Because that's happened to me a couple times, especially at the place that I work now. I felt so bad. There was one day where there was a meeting happening, and I'm like, and and just I didn't, I wasn't even thinking about it, but I'm like literally trying to squirm past the people in front of me to get into the door because the meeting was getting ready to start. But it's like, and they were like, "Well, go ahead, like, like please enter." And I was like, "Dang, like, oh, you're right." Like I'm, it's because at that point it was about me and getting to that meeting. It wasn't about like. The people who are in that room and the people who are at the doorway. You know what I'm saying? I was so rushed, so I forgot about uh, people other than me. But yeah, hmm. do you feel like this added? Okay, so you said that like what should have been talked about was our whiteness and like the privilege that y'all have, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So do you think that this conversation lended itself well to like? Because we, we were talking about their race, but we don't have, like, we don't have the, the right, yeah. I don't know if that's the right word, to talk about that. So do you think that this um, conversation with you... I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I hope I hope it did. And I, I also think like, that... Like, is there more that you want to add to the conversation is what I'm um, trying to like, oh. I mean, we well, first of all, I, did, I do hope it helped. And... I also think that the nature of this podcast is very, lends itself to conversations like those, you know what I'm saying? And conversations like this one, where if it lines up, it lines up, and if it doesn't, it doesn't, because this, this is a tool for reflection, you know what I'm saying? And uh, if I were to add anything else... I can't really, I really can't really, I can't think of much, because it's just all about understanding your your positionality right understanding mm-hmm. what makes up your identity and how history informs your identity too i don't think we talked i don't know if we talked about history a lot and i don't know if you can answer this question or if it's a question that we need to answer but like what could we should we have said so okay you were talking about adoption in that last episode yeah and and language around and yeah, you talked about adoption in the last episode, and you wanted to 
related to education in the sense of making activities and lessons in a room or a space where it can be inclusive of that. And it also eventually led to race, right? And my critique of the last episode was that it was the opportunity for you all to talk about your whiteness and it didn't really, or at least for her as a mom, to talk about her whiteness and the privilege she has in those spaces. But she, nothing meaningful was really said. And so, and so going back to that, what, what should have been said, I don't know. I think what could have been said maybe was, what is she doing as a white woman for brown youth, right? What does she do? But like, if, if I had a child, who was brown like me and was brown and made a comment comments were made about my student's skin at school. I would obviously cause a ruckus, right? As a parent, but a big angry man coming in, right? Like, uh, a, a, another Latino male, depending on the school coming into the place, all angry is going to be perceived very differently than a, uh, concerned white mother, right? And those, her concerns and her, her, uh, arguments will probably be perceived in a different way. So I think what could have been said is, so then what, in what way did you, did you use your whiteness to advocate for your two children? You know what I'm saying? Um, and from what I remember from listening to the episode, that was nothing that was really touched on. Um, and it, and, I think what should have been said or what advice that we could probably give to, to people is just, um, don't, you can't ignore the whole, like, you can't really ignore race and you, you got to make sure you talk about it when it's relevant because when you don't, just like ignoring any issue, when you don't talk about a topic at hand and then it eventually inevitably comes up again, you're still not going to know how to cope with it. And then you're just going to go years and years and years and years without talking about it. And it's going to probably end up in some hurt in some way, shape or form. I'm not talking about specifically with your aunt's family or with adoption or um, race, but with social justice or, yeah, topics anyway. If you act like you're um, cool with something or if you're trying to avoid talking about it, um, or even not even avoid, right? If you're not even actively thinking about it or yeah, addressing it, it it's not that you're, I'm not saying she avoided anything, right? not avoiding if you're not actively thinking about it then it can lend itself to not knowing how to what's the word navigate it so then when when it comes up again later it's just gonna either be ignored or whatever like we're still not actively thinking about it and it could eventually just lend itself to becoming something um never may result in hurt or so similar to how she spoke up to the school about like and was like advocating for like these assignments aren't appropriate and this isn't helpful for him and like going and like fighting for that and asking for meetings and whatever that same same, like tenacity and passion transfer over could have trans right could have been transferred over to the same situation of like your skin is ugly right because that happened at school right too that I don't know. I don't know for sure. It, it might have, but like, 
so that would require a conversation of like going to the principal and say what kind of community and culture are we yes, building Yes, I, I, I think I was saying that last yeah. time. Where it's like, what kind of school are we even at if students are saying these kinds of things? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? What kind of books are y'all reading? You know what I mean? Or what are teachers? What movies are teachers showing in their classroom on holiday parties? Right? What music are we listening to in the classroom that would make a student say X, Y, and Z? You know? Yeah, I forgot we talked about that. Yeah, education is an institution that is a part of the United States. The United States is a historically racist country. Therefore, institutions that arise from it are going to be maybe not inherently racist, but can easily revert to racist hegemony, right? Or like the practices and the actions and thoughts that Uh inform racism or that are informed by racism will be present in school. And the only way to fight it is to... The only way to fight it is to... Not the only way. I'm going to rephrase it. So with this institution that is inherently racist, one way to make meaningful change to meet the needs of a culturally diverse or... Yeah, a culturally diverse population is to make changes from within that reflect them. Meaning, like maybe you hire more teachers that look like your students. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Or engage in some discussions that allow, that give space for teachers to confront their whiteness and understand what that even means. Mm -hmm. Right? To understand the difference between sympathy and empathy. To understand the difference um between being white and being educated or being white and being uneducated you know or whatever like because if you're not going to make those systemic changes within a system it's not going to change the system you know what i'm saying so mm-hmm. that's it not that's it there's more you there's a lot of different ways to address i think the inequity in education so i'm not going to say the only way is to make changes from within yeah, but um it's but one way that it starts there. Yeah, we could we could try that. No, yeah, well, any honestly, any time, um, you can. What are, what are some things I got going for me? You, you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Murillo says M R M U R I L L O says, right? Um, I also have a blog, createyourownmerit.blogspot.com. And I feel like those are some spaces where I either share the thinking of other people that challenge the status quo or I myself am writing about my thinking that challenges the status quo. Um, I don't have any type of, I guess, what's the word, platform for my work necessarily. But if you follow me on those platforms, you can be informed with the different artistic work that I do, which often engages students and um, is activist activism centered i guess i think like read a book read a book any women like women class and race by angela davis white for For white people who teach in the hood um and the rest of y'all too right which also pertains to me um a latinx and african-american history of the united states like honestly just read a book with a title that doesn't um, mirror your reality and then see how that goes for you. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And I read, well, one, th- one thing that I've been thinking about since the last episode and talking to you is in the book, White Fragility, even though it mirrors what I am, I'm white. It talks about how white people just don't even like talking about race because it makes them uncomfortable. That's like the one time in their whole life that they ever get uncomfortable about anything. What's annoying about it? Uh huh. Right. Is because so yeah. It goes into all like it goes into that. And even though obviously it was about whiteness, right? It's still a, a, a reality that's outside of your own. But I, yeah, it's it's very weird, right? Like this is the one time we're gonna talk about it. Stop feeling. Stop being so defensive. Like just. That's the word. Defensive. Yes. Like, yeah, immediately like, defensive, like, like people will be like, well, I'm not like that, or I don't do that, or I don't know, Because blah, blah, blah. If, it, if somebody's saying it about you, we have to think about why it's being said. Mm-hmm. If I am ever told anything by my colleagues, especially colleagues, right, or students or families that is calling out a bias of mine, the, the last thing I need to be is defensive. Mm-hmm. I need to validate what they're saying. Like, all right, thank you so much for sharing that. I need to take that into consideration, and I will make sure to actively avoid insert bias here. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. Not like, oh, well, not me. Like, I rarely do that. Not, no, I, my, I'm not a racist. You can ask my friends. Like, stop. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.